I actually, I actually like the introduction of of sorcery into the series. I like that it put it put a little more fantasy into the urban fantasy aspects of Highlander. And of course, the other the other thing is, for all we know, this isn't magic at all. It is, in fact, sufficiently advanced technology from Zeist that Mako's character has somehow managed to hold on to. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell, especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy Six, this is sequel cast. They are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is sequel cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. The theme song to the sequel cast is performed and written by Mark with a C. Check out his latest album, Motherfuckers Be Bullshitting, at markwithac.bandcamp.com. Now we return you to. The sequel cast. Well done, Highlander. The sword wields the spirit of its master. It can be the gate to either heaven or hell. Just strike out my head and you will take all my knowledge. I will not. Not even for the power of illusion. Not even. Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a show that looks at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt, and we're in the middle of looking at the series of Highlander films. This week, we'll be looking at Highlander 3, The Final Dimension. Right. In the United States, I think it was simply called Highlander The Final Dimension. Overseas, it was called Highlander 3, um, either The Final Conflict or Highlander 3 The Magician or Highlander 3 The Sorcerer. Uh, this one goes by many different titles, but it's the one that stars uh, Christopher Lambert, again, as Connor McCloud, And as the villain, you have Mario Van Peebles as Kane. And um, you also have famed uh, Asian actor Mako in there is playing Nakano. And the female love interest is played by Deborah Kara Unger. She plays Dr. Alexander Dr- Johnson and Sarah Barrington in the flashback sequences. So, uh, with me is Thrasher. Hello, everybody. And uh, we got a website, sequelcast.com. You can check out you know news uh, episodes of the podcast. And I've been doing uh, some weekly features about... New sequels released uh, in Blu-ray and in movie theaters, which I think is pretty exciting. Uh, if you go to facebook.com slash sequelcast, we got a page over there where uh, the fans like to interact with us. Makes it pretty convenient. Uh, sequelcast.com used to have a comment page, but uh, I've uh, turned off the comments because the spam was uh, pretty horrendous. So, um, We also got uh, some sponsors if you like to shop at Amazon.com... Uh, and who doesn't? Right, I get stuff from there all the time. I just got uh, the American Pry uh, Trilogy on Blu-ray off of Amazon.com. Because uh, I enjoy those films. I know a lot of people don't. But um, anyway, the next time you do your shopping on Amazon, if you go to SequelCast.com and click on our Amazon link in the left banner and uh, just shop away, uh, we, uh, we get a small percentage 
uh, of the amount of what you purchase, and that goes towards, you know, me paying the monthly uh, hosting fees for the show and equipment and all that good stuff. So and also executive rubdowns. Executive rubdowns, yeah. I, the whole reason I got into the podcasting biz was for the executive rubdowns. Oh, lots of rubdowns. Lots of rubdowns. Uh, you know, they just start, and you just don't know when they're going to stop. Well, we so do. They get all the way to the bottom. That's right. From the top to the bottom. From the windows to the walls. From the Highlander to the final dimension. Uh, <laughs> Which is not nearly as final as we've been led to believe. Oh, sure. Um, Highlander final dimension. Uh, yeah, this was released in theaters in the United States pretty briefly theatrically in uh, November of 94. So uh, literally just like three years after Highlander 2, The Quickening. Um, by the time this had come out, the TV show had already been on for a season or two. And uh, there's apparently some loose tie-ins to the TV show, which I wasn't able to pick up on. But I've only seen a smattering of episodes uh, of the television series Highlander. But, uh, Thrasher, can you remember when you've seen Highlander Final Dimension for the first time, this third film in the series? Well, actually, uh, in the late 90s, this movie was a uh, a staple on late-night television back in Norfolk, Virginia. It was like, if, if like... If you're up till two in the morning on a Saturday, as I often was, it seemed like any weekend there was about a twenty-five percent chance that this movie would be on. Uh, in fact, it was also it was aired several times as part of uh, Doctor Madblood's movie, a local horror host show, which I've mentioned a few times before on the sequel cast. Although I don't know if I ever saw it all the way through, my memories of the movie are completely vague, except for. One very boring... The only scene I remember is the scene where they're analyzing tartan patterns on a computer. <laughs> uh, I, I like That's all I ever remembered up until watching it again uh, in one sitting for the sequel cast. Yeah, I mean, the first time I saw any of the Highlander movies, period, is I was in high school and I worked at Blockbuster Video, so that meant, uh, that meant free video rentals. This is back when stuff was just on videotape. So I rented and saw Highlander 1, 2, and 3 on a single weekend. I think even on a Saturday, it was the same day probably. So um, Highlander Final Dimension, uh, I never saw in the theater. I only saw on videotape. And then I haven't seen it since then, except just seeing it now for the sequel cast. And it's worth mentioning there's a few different cuts of this film. Um, as always. Yeah, as is common with the Highlander franchise. Uh, so the theatrical version is rated PG-13. And the version that is on the Netflix uh, Watch Instantly streaming in the United States as of April 2012 is the PG-13 cut. Um, the version they released on videotape, and I believe on DVD, although the DVD is a little bit tricky to find in stores because it's been out of print for a while, is a, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a director's cut. It's like an R-rated cut that has uh, nudity in there. And uh, a little bit more violence and a little bit revamped special effects. So, yeah, special director's cut, I guess, is the title for it. So you get to see more titties in uh, that cut, which I appreciated as a high school kid watching that version. Yeah, it was before we had access to titties of our own. Yeah, as uh, as you get older, uh, you men tend to grow a nice set of man titties as... Uh, Oh, what uh, as Alfred Molina said in an interview for Spider-Man Two. Uh, I just I just rent mine. By the by the ounce, the gram. <laughs> by the pound, baby. By the pound. Oh boy, is there some? Uh... I don't know what the hell we're talking about anymore. 
Mighty hefty titties. Highlander Final Dimension. Okay. Uh, I think you're mistaken. It's, it's not the Final Dimension because they made several sequels and more TV shows. And, and there, are, there are several continuity uh, problems brought up by this film. <laughs> well, before we get into continuity problems, Thrasher, I, uh, yes. I do want to say that this film, um, first off, doesn't even acknowledge the, pre- the Highlander 2. And yet, it isn't made in such a way that it says Highlander 2 doesn't exist. <laughs> that is true. I believe the the next, the fourth film in the series, Highlander Endgame, has a brief Highlander 2 reference, but you're right. Uh, you want to talk about, I mean, um, this film, I think in some ways, they almost were trying to remake the first film. Uh, Highlander Final Dimension in that uh, aspect is a much more typical sequel than Highlander 2 The Quickening. And that, hey, well, historical stuff, uh, some romance, some sex scenes, uh, guys fighting with swords, uh, uh, New York City, uh, uh, Scotland, uh, Enya music. Uh, it's, it's, it's much more toned down. It's much more reined in. It, like, in, in, all, in all honesty, it, it feels like, it, it doesn't so much feel like a movie as it feels like a two-parter of a television series. You're right. You know, it doesn't. Even though the first movie budget, the, the budget on the first two films wasn't huge, it still felt like a movie, and this one is filmed more like a TV show. The budget, um, although not bad for the time, is apparent. Certainly, the special effects really don't hold up in this one, because you're dealing with very early computer effects. Well, not not that early. I mean, th- th- they make use of morphing and a lot of, a lot of techniques that were really pioneered in, in Willow. But mm-hmm. even at the time, I, I think they looked dated. I mean, if this came out in 94, 95... 94, yeah, yes. Yeah, that would have been after Jurassic Park. Right? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the bar for effects had really been... That that's, had really been raised, and I guess that that's another thing. It's like, it's the same kind of special effects I would have expected from a fantasy television series at the time. But at the time, it's also where... Doing those kind of computer effects were very, very expensive. And like now, you can do really, and movies can have really great special effects and be fairly low budget. You know, that playing field is sort of even out, and that wasn't at the time. But um, that this plot hinges on the fact that the villain is a magician. Yeah, yeah. so there's lots of showing <laughs> of fancy mystic stuff, but it doesn't quite have the oomph. I almost wish the the the, the supernatural stuff was was accomplished with a little bit more on artistry, a little like more more camera tricks, more more use of the cut. And uh the way this film begins is strange. It's almost like they took a movie trailer and tacked it on at the beginning of the film. Because you have Christopher Lambert as immortal Connor McCloud speaking directly to the camera, not speaking to anyone in particular. It looks like he's speaking to the audience. Sort of recapping stuff in the first film that he talks about his master Ramirez, played by Sean Connery, dying, but cleverly you don't see any actual footage of Sean Connery. So well, that way you don't have to pay me. Yeah, so you don't have to pay any residuals. But, uh, uh, you know, he sort of spells out the what the movie's all about, which is useful if you haven't seen the other film. But this beginning part takes place uh, during part of Highlander 1, right? Like, after yeah, Ramirez it's, it's... dies, but before 1980s New York City. Yeah, it's, it starts with what what McLeod was doing in Japan. 
Right. Which which isn't bad. I kind of I I, I kind of appreciated the the the, the old the, the old Japanese setting. Although at the same time, nothing about it seemed all that Japanese to me. <laughs> it, it seemed like Mong like for some reason it didn't read as Japan. It read as Mongolia to me. Yeah, which could be kind of fitting uh, with the the villain, as we'll see in a little bit. But you're right. It, not, they don't. You don't see Japanese temples. You don't see it, it's sort of a, a cave in Japan. And at that point, if it's a cave, does it need to be Japan? Other than I don't know. I mean, the Highlander Final Dimension is well after Shogun and stuff like that. But you had some Jackie, uh, Jackie Chan's Chinese. But you had, I don't know, some Asian um, culture kind of coming more into mainstream with sushi, sushi restaurants becoming more commonplace and stuff. The anime had broken out. Uh, and that's that's a very good point too. Anime had broken out among the well, I mean, nerd. We know McCloud culture. went to Japan, so they might as well use Japan in this movie. But at the same time, I wish they tried a little harder to make it read as Japan. Not just Not that, that I... he has a new mentor uh, named Nakano, played by Mako Iwamatsu, and uh, Mako uh, or, Mako, or, or Mako, awesome. depending on how you want to pronounce it. Well, yeah, has been in so many. I mean, he was in uh, both of the Schwarzenegger, Conan the Barbarian films. He uh, because of that, he later did a voiceover in uh, the Samurai Jack uh, cartoons by uh, Tartakovsky. Um, but he, he's been in so many movies, and uh, he always has a sense of, of class. He's like he's short and little, usually has a bald head, which just comes across as very intense. And uh, you can see that Connor McCloud, as an immortal, wants more training from different um, immortals around the world, which is fine, but they don't spend much time building up their relationship. So by the time this uh, character of Nakano is killed off, you, you don't really care. I mean, this movie starts with the voiceover and continues with a montage. Well, I, 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 I disagree. I think we do get a sense, I think we do get a real sense of Highland, the Highlander's relationship with the sorcerer. Uh, they do have a, they do have a neat little, but, it, but it's a really, it's a strict master-student relationship. I can't really say whether they, they are friends when all this is done with. Although, again, this does raise the question if these immortals are all destined to eventually kill each other, why do they help each other out? Although I, I'll admit, this particular immortal being a sorcerer, you know, he probably is doing what he believes is best in his own mystical way. When the character of Nakano in Highlander of the Final Dimension dies, you do have a feeling he feels like it's his time. And, and you mentioned that a bit uh, earlier in the episode of uh, on the original Highlander Thrasher, that maybe that's why immortals, even though they're immortal, at a certain time feel like their time has passed. That they almost, not kill themselves, but they almost are willing to accept... Uh, they're, ti- they're tired. They're tired, they're tired. of, of uh, they're sick and tired. the immortality. They don't get no figure. respect. Huh? Yeah. Hey, boy, I, I don't have any mortality. No mortality at all. Oh, jeez. Hey, but you're all right. <laughs> This lightning, it's shooting out of my head. I don't understand it. Oh. You know, whenever I did that, was not Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I tell you what, the other, the other night, the other night, uh, I, 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 you know, I experienced the quickening, or as my wife called it, a honeymoon. Oh. <laughs> okay, so after that. Um, I mean, this training yeah, like, sequence is, is so mu- almost shot for shot, is really similar to the Yoda Luke Skywalker training sequence. And uh, Empire Strikes Back, even where he's blindfolded, or I guess this is from uh, Star Wars uh, Episode Four: New Hope, but he's blindfolded and has to chop it up an apple in half. And I mean, the training stuff, even though the guy's a sorcerer, 
Uh, he can like what change the the environment to make it appear like something else, kind of like a hollow well, deck. Well, that's that's the thing that that I had a real a real difficult time with is this movie never set its ground rules for what sorcery really was or how it worked because everything Mako's character says leads you to believe that his power is all about illusion and manipulating perceptions. And yet, when the villain eventually gets a hold of, of sorcery, he's able to outright break the laws of physics, transmogrify himself, and do all these things. I mean, I can see where they were going as far as the, the screenwriter. I forgot to mention this uh, Highlander Final Dimension, based on characters by Gregory Wyden. Uh, Gregory Wyden wrote the original draft of the script for Highlander, but he also is known for writing and directing the original Prophecy film starring Christopher Walken. Uh, but uh, Highlander Final Dimension has a story by Brad Merman and William N. Panzer. Uh, William Panzer being a producer of uh, the Highlander films and the TV shows. He was involved in anything Highlander, basically. The screenplay is by Paul Ole, Renee Manzor, and Brad Merman. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of those are writers in the TV show as well, because that was going on at the same time. Um, so, in these sequences with The Magician... It's not spelled out what his spells are, you're correct, Thrasher, but not only that, you can see why you come up with a character that can do magic tricks to be a worthy adversary against immortals, because if you're just watching sword fights all the time, that could become boring. I mean, what, oh, the bad guy in this one has a bigger sword that has more spikes off the end? Like, where can you go from from there? I guess there's different sword fight styles around the world. Uh, choreography stuff you could do, but I can see them wanting to mix it up a bit with uh, introducing the element of magic in there. Oh no, I don't mind. Like I, I actually, I actually liked the introduction of of sorcery into the series. I liked that it put it put a little more fantasy into the urban fantasy aspects of Highlander. And of course, the other the other thing is, for all we know, this isn't magic at all. It is in fact sufficiently advanced technology from Zeist that Mako's character <laughs> somehow managed to hold on to. Yeah, yeah, that could be. I mean, but shortly after these training stuff in the beginning, uh, the villain... Which, which, included, which yeah. included a round of Fruit Ninja. <laughs> Fruit Ninja being a popular game for the iPhone and on the uh, the Kinect on the Xbox 360. Yeah. You're a bit sick there, Thrasher. Have you, are you eating another uh, piece of cornbread? I, and I was so delighted by my own reference, I uh, I started to choke on with saliva. Oh, that's, that's sexy. Oh, yeah. That's why I get the poon and the nanny. And the tane you can get from the grocery store. All right. Or or NASA. Uh, anyway, Highlander 3. Highlander 3, the final dimension. Um, yeah, yeah, so, so you're Mama introduced McLeod. to the villain, played by Mario Van Peebles, and he has a very interesting history uh, himself. You know, because oh, yeah. he's the son of Melvin Van Peebles, who was... Uh, well known for being a lot of um, so-called black exploitation films and being a director, Mario Van Peebles is a director himself. Um, still directs films to this day and has written on a lot of stuff too. And he made a film uh, where he played the part of his father, making uh, Sweet Sweetback's Sweet Badass, Sweetback's song. Badass song. And, oh, uh, yeah. But his movie's called Badass, uh, released in two thousand three. Double uh, A quintuple S. Yes. And, I mean, so, uh, the Van Peebles are very, very talented. I really liked Melvin Van Peebles, actually, in the uh, TV movie of Stephen King's The Shining, where he plays the part of the housekeeper. And he, he's dressed as a, a nouveau pimp, 70s outfit. 
Um, I'm talking about Mario Van Peebles' father here. But back to Mario Van Peebles, he plays the villain Kane, who I don't know if he's supposed to be Asian. I think it's like more like Mongolian because it's sort of like darker, darker skin. But he wears certainly the Japanese headdress, sort of the samurai uh, kind of outfit. And although well, it's never named as such, his uh, sidekicks are, are called Sengi Khan and Kabul Khan, uh, you know, as of Genghis Khan and that sort of thing. Yeah, implying that they that, that that they are coming out of that part of the world. Yeah. I don't know because because when I when I when I see Kane, that is that is something that I liked. That's something that I liked in in you know the original Highlander. Uh, that you know Connor McLeod is an immortal from the Highlands, so he is the Highlander. The Kurgan is an immortal from one of the Kurgan people, so he is called the Kurgan. I really feel like Kane should have had a title like that, but it makes me wonder if his name if his name is Kane and it's been Kane for a while, could he be one of the first immortals on the earth? I think he's really an alternate version of the character Kane from the Command and Conquer series of video games. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you think he's the he's the head of Nod? Yes. For some reason. Neil before Nod, or something like that. No, but I mean, with the name Kane, if it was Japanese, it would be pronounced Kane. Kane, you know, and it's not in this film, because... But it does continue the theme in the first three films, the villains' names all start with a K. Kurgan in the first film, Katana in the second, and Kane in this third film, Highlander, The Final Dimension. Mm. And, um... If I thought that Michael Ironside as Katana was a Kurgan ripoff, that's nothing compared to Mario Van Peebles' portrayal of Kane. And that oh, he, he does the real deep voice. He's trying to be. He, he's more creepy and perverted, like the Kurgan, than uh, Ironside was as General Katana in Highlander Two: The Quickening. Well, you know, I I kinda, I really like Van Peebles' performance. I almost felt like he was trying to create the Joker to McCloud's Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think there's more humor in the part. And he certainly seems to be enjoying himself. I mean, oh, he he is great. He, like if you thought Michael Ironsides was an immortal who didn't give a fuck, Kane does not give a fuck. He even uh, pops condoms in his mouth as a tasting snack. Yeah, I yeah, mean, he thinks it's a. <laughs> that's a that's a crazy scene. There, we'll Actually, get we'll get to can that. We skip but, yeah. ahead to New York. Uh, we will in a second. Oh, okay. But, I've got some comments about New York. Yeah, sure. Uh, it looks more like Vancouver, Toronto, maybe. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. But, I mean, but, yeah, as, so, as this goes on, there's this conflict where uh, um, Kane is, you know, trying to find the Highlander, because I guess he, he finds out about Connor McLeod uh, through the word of different immortals, apparently. Uh, no, no. It was, uh, it's my belief that he was looking for Mako the whole time. Oh, I, I'm sorry. You're right. To get the uh, the skill of the sorcery, of the... Trickery. In yeah, to take, take, the, take the magic. If you can't tell listeners, I'm drinking. Oregon Springs vodka, ironically, made and bottled in California. Figure that one out. Are you enjoying a beverage, Thrasher? Actually, no, I wasn't. I, 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 I ran straight from the bedroom here, and I didn't have time to grab anything to drink. Do you want to take yourself a second to get something to drink? Um, No, I think I'll be okay. Okay, that's fine. Um, I'm going to soldier on here. Anyway, you know, there's a big sort of fight scene with everything, and um, Nakano Nakano looks at McLeod and tells him, "You need to go. You're 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 young. You're you have a lot of life left in you. You're. It is my time to go. You need to leave this cave." And basically, Nakano, uh, in an Obi Wan Kenobi style, sacrifices himself 
so that Connor McLeod may live. And the cause of the, the quickening, all the lightning coming through Nakano's uh, sorcery-fueled body, causes an avalanche trapping uh, Kane and his uh, his two sidekicks, who also happen to be immortals. As we yeah, they're out. all buried alive in the cave. Although I like I like that scene because it has one of my favorite like practical effect shots in the whole film, where you know he cuts he cuts off the Kane cuts off the sorcerer's head, and he's using the you know he's taking the power of the quickening, and then we see the sorcerer's severed head, and he just smiles. There can be only one Kane, and it will not be you. <laughs> But it's such a great, like, I mean, yes, you can tell that it's just Mako with a fake neck stump with his head sticking through a uh, fake, like, stone. But it works so well. It's a great practical special effect. It's the kind of special effect we don't do anymore, and I really feel cinema is is kind of cheaper for it. You know, if you like old-fashioned sort of makeup and special effects, uh, may I recommend to you a sci-fi channel show uh, that could actually be streaming on their website called... Could be. We won't check. Um, no, of course you won't check. We're the sequel cast. But it's called Face Off, and it's not based on the Nicolas Cage, John Travolta film. But it's, about, pe- it's about people that compete to do uh, practical effects. Uh, usually it's uh, like all like makeup-based, like monster prosthetics and things. It- it's a fairly interesting show. It goes behind the scenes on how they do that sort of thing, and they're given different sort of challenges uh, each week. One week might be they got to make a waterproof underwater costume. And some of the people judging the shows are... Uh, makeup artists that have done work on such films as uh, the uh, Beetlejuice with Michael Keaton, or even as recent as uh, the Hunger Games. So, uh, anyway, Tom Savini been on that show um, as a guest judge for an episode. Yes, he's not one of the regulars, but um, I, I think you'd like it, Thrasher. It's an or, or any listener to the sequel cast might get a kick out of it because we talk about old-fashioned movies on here anyway. So, uh, but yeah, back to. Highlander Final Dimension, the plot goes to to present day, it being the 90s, and um, I think the plot in this film, as far as a romantic interest for Connor McCloud, is done in a much more plausible fashion than what you found in uh, the original Highlander. Mm. Because you have a, a character that uh, is Dr. Alexandra Johnson, played by Deborah Kara Unger, and She's investigating this cave that's been discovered in Japan, which we, as the audience knows, is the cave that Kane, uh, played by Mario Van Peebles, was trapped in. Well, this is the thing, because there's like some... The cave was apparently discovered while... um, Presume like it's some company in Japan is building something. It appears they're building a, a Tesla coil assembly line. <laughs> like that's the only thing we see of what the company is doing there is they're setting up giant Tesla coils. And there's a part of me that wonders: is this part of the Matrix that will make the shield in Highlander Two? Is this some sort of sly reference to that, or what? That would have been a very amusing reference. But, I mean, the, the fan reaction, even though it did okay in the theaters and did really well on video, to Highlander 2, the quickening, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think that having a character that's an archaeologist to begin with as opposed to a female cop in the first film that happened to have written a, a book on the history of metallurgy uh, is a bit easier to swallow. And the things they do with the flashback with one of her um, supposed ancestors, I guess, uh, I think is pretty clever. But you're right. So this kind of sets up an excuse for Kane to break free as they're doing this investigate uh, this excavation 
and he chops off the head of his uh, one of his followers, and he he declares he's going to find the Highlander. Meanwhile, Connor McLeod, um, and now this stuff here violates what happened in Highlander Two: The Quickening. Is um, in at least the uh, what do you call it? In the director, no, in the director's renegade cut of Highlander Two, it shows a complete scene where Connor McCloud talks to the romantic interest from the first film, the cop from New York, and she's dying of of uh, skin cancer, and she screams at him to build it to do something to save humankind. <laughs> However, because this only Highlander Final Dimension takes place like five, ten years after uh, the original oh, yeah. Highlander. That female character apparently is already dead or doesn't exist or something. And Connor she died in a car accident. That, yeah, died. That, like she was like pulped yeah, right. in a car accident, but McLeod got out without a scratch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. You're right. They call it a car accident, which violates what happened in Highlander Two. Whatever. No one cares about Highlander Two. I understand that. Hey. But he has he has a son, but it's not a son of his own birth, even though he had the ability to do so theoretically. Because he had won, apparently had won the prize at the end of the first film. Except he didn't know that Kane still survived the uh, the cave-in. Well, that that is where it's like that's that's where it's kind of weird because, to to the best of our knowledge, McCloud did win the game in the first film, and but we know that Kane and his two la- uh, lackeys are were you know buried in that cave and you know still existing. And so, really, he shouldn't have actually won the game. He, he should have been able to sense that there were other immortals in the world. But he couldn't, so I guess they were taken out of the equation because of that cave-in. But if they did, then he won the game, and he should have been able to reproduce. And you'd think... I guess it's that McCloud should have known that he was still immortal, if he, served, if he was still sterile, if he was still unable to die in car accidents... You know th- things like that. Like that. That's the only real kind of continuity sticking point for me. Is they don't they don't exactly explain how the ending of Highlander One jives with the premise of Highlander Three. The other issue is what were Kane and his people doing in the cave? Were they just sleeping out the centuries, or uh, in a hibernating trance, uh, or or just in there going crazier and crazier? You know, I think they're like bears. They're sleeping there for the winter, and got in this got, case, got really really sleepy. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that part's so weird. And because you can't say, oh, an immortal is knocked unconscious for hundreds of years. I guess you could theorize, and this is talking out of school here, that, uh, talking out of school, who uses that phrase anymore? You could theorize that when the power from the quickening of cutting off the head of Nakano is so much, it knocked them in a stupor for 500 years. Well, yeah, it could have. It could have. It could very well have been Mako's magic sealing them in the cave, cutting them off from the, from whatever allowed immortals to sense each other. And I, and I, I could buy that. So, um, I mean, in the meantime, it, it talks. Connor McCloud has a son, and he's living somewhere in the Middle East. I believe it's Marrakesh, but don't quote me on that. It is. It is revealed to be Marrakesh. Is it? They don't spend a lot of time spelling out what it is or what he's doing, and he uh, he feels sort of a, a stirring in him after uh, Kane gets freed, and he knows, you know, the uh, the gathering has started once again, and he's going to have to return to New York City. 
So he leaves his son, presumably with a friend or by himself. That's not really clear either. He's left with a kindly old British man. The kindly old British man who says, Cheerio, chop, chop, you're going to go to New York City, calling him a cloud. You will, you will. First I got a chim chim. The old bamboo, the old bamboo. (laughs) But first let's clean the chimney sweep together, calling him a cloud. Chim chim array, chim chim array, chim chim array. No. It's it's more Australian than British, first off. That's what we need. Highland, we need the Highlander, the Cockney. There can be only one. There will, there will. Up the apples and pears. <laughs> now we need to do Austin Powers one day on the show. Oh wow, that that's going to be fascinating. Uh, I think so. Only if we can do a live episode from the set of the uh, Austin Powers musical. You know, and are they developing an Austin Powers musical? Yes, they are. Okay, and uh. Uh, where I live, uh, this is Matt speaking, of course, in Portland, Oregon, there's a independent video rental store that I neglected to take you to when uh, you and Jason were here for my wedding a few years ago. You um, bastard. Right, called Movie Madness. It has some movie props, including a set, an outfit worn by uh, Mike Myers from the opening dance number of um, oh, wow. Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery, which the colors have faded over the years in this costume, but it's still a funny little sight to see. Back to Highlander, the final dimension. That's how you know this is a good film, because we make all these lovely, lovely tangents. Well, it's not a bad film. There's just not too much to to say about it. It's okay. I mean, I do appreciate... Imagine you walking into this film, and it's been a few years since Highlander 2 came out, and this one makes so many callbacks to the original. I mean, you have the whole thing of uh, Christopher Lambert as Connor McCloud returning to New York City. And he returns to his same antique shop from the first film. And it's it's not the same set, but it looks very similar to what was in the first yeah. film. They got some good details right. Although, when when he got to New York, the New York, New York as presented <laughs> in this movie, appears to be populated only by ADR, uh, by, by ADR voices with Latino accents. Yeah, and I mean, it, all of New York City, as presented in this film, is a, is in a snowy alleyway, where people drive up to Connor McCloud and go, Hey, what you doing? What's your wallet, man? And he's like, Don't mess with me. I'm, I'm Russell Nash. I'm Connor McCloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a really pointless, like, that whole mugging scene seemed really pointless, especially, like, why, why didn't he defend himself? You know, or did he figure, well, it's easier to just let them shoot me since I know I'll survive. But it just seems, it seems to do nothing except get him into, tied to a chair in a hospital, or tied to a bed in a hospital, for no adequately explained reason, and then escape. It's like, because he's, ta- he's found right. and taken to the emergency room. Yeah. And when the doctors look at him, he has no bullet, he's covered in blood, but he has no bullet wounds, of course, because he's healed, he's an immortal. But rather than saying, oh good, this man just got lucky, they immediately put him in this, in, in a, this like crazy psych ward. Well, I do appreciate how when Connor McCloud wakes up, he sort of is kind of crazy and kind of in a fight or flight mode. Kind of attacking the doctors and the nurses. He's very panicked. He doesn't really know what's going on. Uh, even though well, on, he should know what's going on because he's been shot, so of course he's going to be taken to a hospital. And he's not shot five hundred times like he was in Highlander Two: The Quickening. But that's neither here nor there. But I mean, the scene in the hospital is just such a lame. Okay, so he's an immortal, and he he's tied to a bed with um, 
like like rope or something with with metal. Well, it's, it's like gaffer's tape. Gaffer's tape restraints. He's an immortal. Shouldn't he be able to break through motherfucking gaffer's tape? Come on. Well, yeah, this like doesn't make you into doesn't make you super strong. But at the same time, you you'd think that he'd have the gumption to get out because that's the other thing is like is that a, a McCloud who has never been demonstrated to be crazy, he's just been thrown in by a doctor, uh, and yet there's a man who thinks he's Napoleon. And is there any more hackneyed indicator of madness than a person who thinks he's the Emperor Napoleon is allowed to run is allowed to walk around unrestrained? In fact. He, McLeod appears to be the only person under restraint in this uh, in this holding pen for lunatics. I mean, this scene looks like a community theater production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's it looks so cheap. It, it's some pretty lame comedy, and uh, although it does lead to a mildly interesting fight scene in a laundromat. I like the fight scene. The fight scene was fun, but it's okay. They they could have. I mean, if they wanted to do that fight scene. Why couldn't McLeod, while visiting his own his old digs, been cornered in an actual laundromat by one of the other immortals? Why do why do we have to get him into a hospital, then get him into the psych ward of the hospital, and then from there get him into a basement of the hospital that has washing machines and sheets in it? You know, you got to think of the budget. I mean, another big problem is uh, Sean Connery isn't in this film, and I, I think they could have thought of a reason to fit Sean Connery in this movie uh, somehow. I'm not sure how. Yeah, all he has to do is save Ramirez, and, and he could have shown up. <laughs> right. And Sean Connery, uh, if nothing else, was a comic relief in the first two films. And having Christopher Lambert trying to do the similar, uh, trying to do the comic relief, he just can't do it like Sean Connery can I'm sorry. Christopher Lambert is a very uh, interesting actor, is what I, how I would describe him. But I don't think comedy is one of his strengths. He can kind of do things in a sarcastic accent, but that doesn't make things funny. Yeah, yeah. Although, oh, actually, speak, speaking of that, that fight, because when, when Kane escapes, we mentioned that he, one of the first thing, the first thing he does really after dispatching one of his lackeys is to kill the other. Which makes me wonder why? Why did he do that? Did he just want to feel some quickening before, you know, now that he's free or what? And it, and again, his lackeys are immortal, and it brings up the problem: if you're all destined to kill each other, why are you helping each other out? We're, I, we're both of his lackeys, each waiting for the opportunity to cut off uh, to cut off Kane's head. I kind of think maybe it's like the whole thing in uh, Star Wars with the the dark side, how there's a master and an apprentice. Right, and one's always looking to kill the other when they get a chance. Like I, I, I think you're right, Thrasher. I mean, it's not spelled out very well that he has two people following him around instead of one makes it a bit more complicated. Although, I mean, the, the scene in the laundromat is between Connor McCloud and one of um, Kane's lackeys. Yeah, I mean, I, I really feel like the only the only reason the only reason he has lackeys is just so we can get this fight scene without it having to be against Kane. And it should be mentioned that. Um, Connor McLeod, who goes a part of the time by Russell Nash when he's in New York City, looks pretty similar to how he did in the first Highlander film. He has the same jacket. He has the the short hair. I have to say I appreciate Connor McLeod more with longer hair, even if it's a wig. I just like that look better. Because with the shorter hair, you can see the receding hairline. You can see his age more. Um, Although not as much as in this, as in Highlander Endgame, for Christ's sake. But... 
Anyway, you get more of the, the plots <laughs> linking together in this film between Connor McLeod and the romantic interest, played by Deborah Kara Unger, Dr. Alexandra Johnson. And, th- and which brings us to the only scene that I used to remember from this movie, which is in, in the sorcerer's cave, she finds a scrap of fabric, which happens to be from McLeod's tartan, and she's going through an online index of clan tartans trying to figure out where it's from. I kind of like that. Tr- I, I kind of like that scene, Thrasher. I think at least it's somewhat more plausible than looking at sword fragments from the first film. Even though you're in an old-fashioned computer that is looking at a close-up of a... Of a swatch of this tartan that goes beep 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 McLeod outcast found or whatever. I don't think the computer speaks. It should have. But like I think I think that's what I actually remember this scene. It's one of the few scenes where a computer is being used realistically in in any movie. There's not a ridiculously fancy interface. It's not like it's just looking at tartans on an index of tartans. There's nothing There's nothing too fancy. It's the way computers at the time actually worked. Right, we're in 94, 95. It was just before like CD-ROMs were on computers, and the graphics uh, looked a little, a few steps beyond glorified stick figures. I mean, there wasn't much computers could do as far as that time as photographs and analyzing and that sort of thing. So as an excuse to get these characters to meet, it's okay Although why women continue to want to fuck Connor McLeod when they're put in highly dangerous situations, I never quite get. Because it's the only way they can get closer to Christopher Lambert. I see. That's what it's about. It's all meta. It's all meta. I see. Highlander? It's all meta. No, it's called Highlander (laughs) The Final Dimension. So, I mean, the the plot of this movie in the second half of the film... It, it doesn't have a whole lot to go on, as you said, Thrasher. You kind of get some threatening stuff between uh, McLeod and Kane. You get some romantic flirting between uh, Dr. Johnson and Connor McLeod. And Connor McLeod reminisces over a romance he had in uh, in France during the same uh, during the same revolution as um, the story Les Mis by Victor Hugo. Layers Miserable. It's that same sort of period as that novel. Yeah, which uh, and yeah, he has a, he has a a love affair with a with a, an English woman who's in France for some reason, and uh, he gets arrest. <laughs> McLeod gets arrested for treason, and one of his immortal friends, who decides he's ready to die, goes to the guillotine to die in uh, in McLeod's place. Which which brings up a, a number of issues. Well, one. Is that the woman he's having an affair with sees the per- sees the guy killed under the name McLeod and assumes it's her lover and is thrown into despair. She's off in the distance, but do you know that he's having an affair with her in the first place? They were having sex, yes. I know they're having sex. Just because you have sex with someone does not make it an affair. It's no, that is exactly what it is. No, because no, later, che- later on he checks on her and... Uh, she's married and has a kid, but you're not sure of what that time gap is between the uh, faux execution from a cloud. Well, well, I guess the thing is, why doesn't he go to her? Because it clearly pains him that she thinks he's dead. Or did he decide, well, I'm immortal, I don't want to go through this again, maybe it's better that she thinks I'm dead. Like, I wish we could have seen that thought process, but the other thing is, if it's an immortal who dies on the guillotine getting his head cut off, 
why is there no quickening? Is it because an immortal didn't drop the blade? I think you're right. And they well, never spell that out. In this film, they do mention, unlike the other ones, that when you kill an immortal, you get their powers, which is why Kane uh, wants to kill uh, Nakano to get his powers of uh, illusion sorcery. And, and sorcery, whatever the fuck else it is. Um, but uh, how, how did you think the romance worked on Highlander Final Dimension compared to uh, in the uh, other films? Well, I mean, I like the period stuff. That was a f- that was a fun little detour. It's nice that it's the same, same actress as the present day. I think that's sort of interesting. Oh yeah, yeah, but but I think that's one of the things that kind that kind of bothered me because it means even if they have a relationship, it puts this whole glaze over it where she's really just a replacement for a dead woman, and that like. It, it makes it like yeah. he doesn't. He's not interested in her because she's her. He's interested in her because it reminds him of a past fling, and that's. I don't know. I find that a little bit distasteful. I, I like. I, I guess. I, I don't know. Like I, I don't. I don't want. I don't want her to remind him so much of this past love. I mean, so what are you saying, Thrasher? You're saying after uh, you lost your virginity for your first time in uh, August of 97, that every woman you've slept with thereafter has been a... You're thinking of the first person? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that when, when, when a relationship ends for me, it's over, and I don't then go looking for new women to replace the ones that are no longer in my life for whatever reason. I you know I I want I want to when, when I love a woman it's for, it's for who she is not because she reminds me of somebody else. Hmm. By the way, I do plan to lose my virginity again uh, this summer, so uh, be on the lookout for that. Oh, how is that going to work out? You sewed your penis shut. Well, no, no, you were the one who said when I lost my virginity for the first time, so I figured I'd do I a see. yes and on that, but you just did a no shut up on it. <laughs> I forgot, yes and is the principal rule in uh, improvisation. No, it isn't. So confused. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's my problem with the relationship. Although, you know what we do see in New York? We do see a lot of Kane just being a, a, an asshole with magic powers. And I actually kind of like that. I like it when he fucks with the three-card Monty dealers. I like it when he... I... I, I I guess, you know, I like it when he's looking at the sex shops in Times Square. Because, again, this is a pre-Disneyfied Times Square. This is old-fashioned, gritty, sticky New York. Yeah, I, um, I never had a chance to, to visit um, Manhattan or New York City, whatever, until, like, 2002 or 2003 or something. So, I mean, then it had thoroughly been uh, Disneyfied, uh, if you will. But I, I will say that... Um, much like in the first film where the Kurgan slept with the prostitute, a call girl, a prostitute, what have you. In this film, you have a scene where Kane sleeps with the prostitute, but instead he encounters... It's the most Asian, Asian prostitute that's ever been committed to film. I think she was walked off the set of Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> yeah, her, her accent, her accent, that's like, God, I, I, don't, I don't know how the actress really talks, but like I really felt that the accent was being played up a little, like, way too hard. Yeah, it's like sucky sucky five dollar. Oh no, high high render mag- magic. Yeah, yeah. T- take that, <laughs> scale it back about two and a half percent. That's where the accent was in this movie. Uh, right, you get uh, even though it's the PG thirteen cut that's on Netflix, you get a little bit of side boob. 
But well, you know, and a weird what, scene of uh, Kane eating a condom and then spitting well, it out. Oh yeah, because because she she says like, but I have a rule: no grav, no rav, and and hands him a condom, <laughs> and he's confused because obviously he's never seen a prophylactic before. I, I would so have appreciated like a close up of the condom package being banana flavored or something that would, <laughs> <laughs> you know, add some logic to that scene. But well, no, well, I think like if he should have been introduced to gum earlier, like he should have, like you know, oh and, and yeah, then it would have. But but then again, he is kind of crazy and out of his time, so it's not like you know. I don't know why he immediately puts it in his mouth, but but the thing is, then he he takes her from behind, which which th- this is one of the things that kind of like stayed in my mind in that scene. Well, you know, one of her conditions for having sex, her only condition for having sex with her, aside from money, was that he wear a condom, which is which is very responsible, and I'm glad you know the film this film brings that up. But on the other hand, he takes her without putting on the condom. And you can tell when there is and is not a condom. So she had to know, which makes me wonder, was that rape? Was that without her consent because he didn't put the condom on? I think he was using some of his magic to do a bit of convincing on his part. I guess it's just like I, I, it just it's just like I didn't know how much I'm supposed to hate the Kurgan in that moment. Because there's this voice in the back of my head telling me, oh, he's raping that woman. But then there's another then there's another voice where no, she's de- she's decided not to be a stickler on the condom rule, which it, it's just weird. Like, I I don't know how, what I'm supposed to be thinking about him in that scene. It's supposed to demonstrate how twisted this guy is. Although, I mean, frankly, that's kind of he's so twisted. He has sex with a prostitute without a condom. I mean, that's <laughs> that's not. I mean, it's it's it, it's a bit dang- it's dangerous. It is dangerous, but, it's dangerous, like but not, not wild man crazy. Yeah, not like uh, running uh, pedestrians over in a car at high-speed chase. We'll get to that later. Yeah, no, they do call back to that tube. Jeez. Yeah, I do wish we got to see him being a little bit more evil with his magic while he was in New York. Yeah, you don't get you get sort of like in the other films, you get sort of a face-off in a religious area in a what in a temple. It's a training area, right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a dojo. Uh, oh wait, I want to say it's like it's a. a the like Japanese Cultural Exchange Center. It had a really long name, and was apparently a very well-funded organization. But it used to be a Buddhist temple at one point, which is it's why it's holy ground. And when they uh, tried I thought to... it was a Buddhist temple because they had like Buddhist study groups there. Uh, well, it was holy ground, but uh... right. Even they get into a fight scene, you know, you see the the Buddha statue start to react, and they kind of have to end the fight early because the magician just doesn't care about rules of the immortals. Which, you know, that's kind of interesting. It's also kind of interesting in this film, you have a minor character that's a cop that's trying to been trying to track down Connor McCloud all these years. All well, the, he's, been trying to, he's been trying to track down this person who's been decapitating people with a sword. So, I mean, that's a nice callback to the first film. Uh, he's the, also the most New York of New York cops. But it's not. It doesn't sound like a real New York accent either. It just sounds like a real overdone imitation. Well, you know that 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 brings me to something. After seeing this movie, I feel like the director only gave the actors in this movie one direction, and that direction was bigger. <laughs> Everything seems so played up, and it works with Kane. I mean, he should be he should be crazy and over the top. But then with the accents and, and you know, the heightened, the heightened performances, it, it, it doesn't quite carry over to the rest of the film. Uh, urban fantasy needs a measured amount of over-the-top characters and a measured amount of whimsy. Uh, and, and the performances push that a bit over the top. 
Uh, would you have a problem with doing the RoboCop commentary after we wrap up the show? I don't think so. Uh, okay. I need to get something to drink. I'll need to check with Yeah, uh, I need to Sarah. take out the dog for a second. Okay, but on with the show anyway. Okay. Oh, Amanda's right. out to work a bit later than I thought. Um, that's my wife. Okay. So, with uh, Highlander, Final Dimension, uh, in this fight scene, somehow McCloud's sword breaks, and he remembers, he goes back to uh, Scotland, and uh, it's a very weird scene. In one sense, it's very emotional. He goes back to these settings where he trained with Ramirez, but Ramirez is no longer there. And they even frame the shots in a very similar fashion. Uh, however, what takes away from the scene, in my opinion, is Connor McCloud is dressed in sweatpants. Uh, jogging, <laughs> all these very pretty vistas. Well, you want to get it. You want to be mobile, and you want, well, because that, that was the weird thing. Because a lot of things. Because I actually liked this this interlude in Scotland, and and yet a lot of stuffs going on. He's forging a new sword for himself on these old forges using using Scottish steel and Japanese steel uh, taken from the Sorcerer's Cave, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, but he's also, like, there's also a training montage in the middle of this. We see him jogging, we see him rowing a boat, we see him training, building himself up. Uh, I like that he visits his wife, wife's grave. I like, I like those tender moments. But there's... He also finds, like, what, a specimen of a sword he buried hundreds of years ago that he reforges, well, which is a nice sort of Conan the Barbarian moment where he makes a sword. Like, I like that mm, stuff, yeah. actually. That's okay. Yeah, but, um... Oh, wait, what did I... Did I have... I'm sorry, I thought I, I thought I had a very specific note about Scotland. Turns Oh, no. The, also, that Scotland is the land of the sweater. Everyone in Scotland is wearing <laughs> these heavy wool knit sweaters. I, he also could have done something with the filming, even if it would have... I mean, this would have been the perfect opportunity for a Sean Connery cameo. Or somehow yeah. his spirit or something shows up on the on the shores of Scotland. It's a Jedi ghost. Basically. Or you even could have taken footage from the first film and sort of had it look like he was jogging with his friend Ramirez and the image slowly fades away and he looks back and he realizes what he's lost. Like, I don't know. I'm talking about my ass here, but... You know, or he just see, he just sees Sean Connery in his problem. Oh, that's Sean Connery. He's one of my favorite actors. <laughs> yeah. Don't I know you from somewhere? No. Or even it's like, listen, McLeod, you could have had, we had one secret weapon we had together. Okay, that, that's not, that's like, <laughs> <laughs> that is Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. I don't know what that yeah, was. Like... We have one sword we have together, McLeod. You have to find it underneath the rocks. And that, that's, that's, that was Schwarzenegger. That's Schwarzenegger or it's a, uh, Mickey from the Mickey loves your Rocky uh, from the Rocky movies. This is a weird tangent. This is possibly Jesus. the worst impersonation based tangent we've ever had. Back to New York. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, because because while he's in Scotland, he gets a call from his British friend because the the Kurgan, I'm not the Kurgan. Kane is found out about McLeod's adopted son by checking out McLeod's digs. Yeah. So using the power of illusion tricks tricks the British man and McLeod's son that McLeod's son should visit New York. So, of course, Kane's going to kidnap him. And so McLeod gets a call from the British guy <laughs> letting him know, like, where the devil are you? You're supposed to be in LaGuardia picking up your son. Why are you in Scotland? And that, um, Connor McLeod has a son is kind of weird. But that you don't spend more than five minutes with him and then you're supposed to care when he gets kidnapped is strange. And you have a really bizarre scene calling out to the first film where Kane takes uh, 
the son hostage and drives away with him on on an airplane and uses his illusion powers to summon the visage of the visage of an airplane to scare him. Well, that's that's the thing I, I, I was never quite sure of. Was he using the power? Of, was he using magic to create the illusions that they were in great peril, or were they actually in great peril? And he was using the illusion to save them at the last minute. Like this is a, goes back to them never really explaining what the sorcerer's power is. Is it all based from manipulating perception, or does he have some sort of control over reality? Because we see him turn into birds and fly, and like it's it's kind of crazy. Right. Um, we should probably start wrapping this up. Uh, so, I mean, the oh, final... Can I say, during yeah. that montage, during the, the sword and training montage in Scotland, the music played there in that scene is Bonnie Portmore by Lorena McKennant, which is one of the most, like, the I, I've, I've heard that song before because it was on a very depressing mix CD that a person I used to know used to play all the damn time. It's a pretty piece of music, but this whole montage stuff in Scotland is like 10 minutes long. Yeah, it goes on. For it goes on for a, a bit too long, I think. A few too many notes, as they say in Amadeus. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, this final sort of confrontation between McLeod and Kane takes place in the low-budget of all low-budget setups, sort of like an underground factory sewer with a lot of steam and bridges and pipes and things. And yet I kind of like that. It took, yeah? took me back to the, the, the first film. I like that these final battles always seem to happen in industrial settings. Yeah, but it's not in a building with a shitload of windows or the cameras all over the place. Like, it's not as good as a fight scene as what was in the first. It's okay, you get really shitty special effects of the sorcerer getting chopped in half and his bottom half wiggling around. Yeah, there's some there's some more magic comedy in that sequence. And the end of the movie, everything works out. Yay! And this time, apparently, Connor McCloud has the quickening, you know, is the has won the game for real, or for realsies this time for realsies, or has he? Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. So, Highlander: Final Dimension, uh, if nothing else, is an apology for <laughs> Highlander Two: The Quickening. <laughs> it's it's a very typical <laughs> sequel. Uh, I think it's better than Highlander Highlander Two: The Quickening. I would give Highlander: Final Dimension. Three out of five stars. Not great. It ain't bad. If you like the first film, eh, watch this one over the second one. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give it a third. It was fun. At the same time, I would almost want to see them in the chronological order. I would like to see Highlander, Highlander Final Dimension, and then Highlander 2, just to see how they... Just to see the progression of events. Although, funny, we never see the adopted son ever again. Although, did you notice that in the final fight sequence with Kane... The music it's it's the it's the it's an orchestration of Doctor Feelgood by Motley <laughs> Crue. Yeah, it's very bizarre. I mean, that was one of Motley Crue's biggest hits, Doctor Feelgood. And uh, yeah, it kind of took it kind of took me out of the movie. Like, well, at first, like when it, when I first noticed that it was Doctor Feelgood, it immediately took me out of the movie. But the longer the fight scene went on, the more I kind of got into it because because Kane really is this unrestrained id of an immortal. Like it. I, and yet, I kind of wish that if they were going to do that, they should have then had an instrumental of a Queen song every time McLeod got the upper hand. Like, it should have been like <laughs> a symbolic musical order versus chaos, uh, you know, tr- trash versus art kind of thing going on. I, I mean, yeah, it's like you're trying to do, uh, 
you know, it's like you can't afford Queen again, so let's do some other lesser prog rock or heavy metal. Yeah, there's absolutely no Queen in this movie. No. Which I really felt hurt it. Like, that That was, I took notes on this film. That was one of my big notes, because there's a lot of, like, flute music throughout it. My biggest note is less Zamfir, more Queen. Uh, I do want to point out the Highlander TV series, uh, as their theme song uses Princes of the Universe from the first film. Um, but we'll talk about that later on in the TV episode, uh, several episodes from now. So uh, we're going to play our pitch a sequel game in which we pretend high, no sequels after Highlander 3 existed, which presumably was the original intention after Highlander Final Dimension, and uh, we'll pitch our own sequel after Highlander 3. So I'll begin. I will call it Highlander, the uh, not-so-final dimension. Oh, God. And it, it deals more with Connor McCloud's character, training with Nakano in uh, ancient Japan. But as part, in the middle of all their training, they have to go against Nakano's mentor, who um, is also Asian, but he happens to be Korean. And uh, so you get some of the, that kind of martial arts in the film, a sort of mixture of martial arts and uh, swords play in there. And uh, you have the idea of someone with magic training someone without magic to fight an opponent uh, the evil uh, uh, Korean mentor of Nakano, who also has magic. So you could even call it Highlander. It's a kind of magic. I think might be a better title, <laughs> in reference to the Queen song. Uh, Thrasher. Can Thrasher. Get that in, yeah. yeah. What's your pitch? A sequel. Okay, uh, my my pitch. Uh, my pitch is going to be uh, uh, Highlander Four: Hollowed Ground. Where here, here's here's the deal. Uh, McLeod's immortal friend who killed, who died on the guillotine, because he was not killed by another immortal, the the quickening, the energy, whatever it is, never left his body. It lingered in his body, fermenting and twisting and corrupting itself, until it reaches such a point that that dark immort that that sort of dark residual immortal energy brings him back to life is this kind of undead immortal. He digs his way out of his own grave. He stitches his head onto his own neck. And he's now, he, he's, he's now this undead immortal that is just, that needs to feed relentlessly on life force. He becomes, he becomes almost like a vampire, but he's ripping people's heads off and draining their souls out of their necks. Uh, now, him being an immortal who's now, well, a pseudo-immortal who's now a- active in the world again, McLeod can instinctively sense it and realizes that he's got to try to put his, uh, he, he realizes there's something's up in the world, but then he starts noticing some of his deceased friend's calling cards. And so he thinks, oh, this, my, my, my friend, my, my friend from the French Revolution is actually, actually alive. We could get together and reconcile. But instead, when they finally meet each other, he realizes what a twisted monster his friend is, has become. And in a way, McLeod's friend actually blames him for his current wretched undead state. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's some, there's some conflict there. You know, eventually there's a huge, uh, sword fight. The catch is, McLeod can't kill him by decapitation because that would lead to another quickening and if that happened then the twisted undead version of immortality would pass into him and he'd become a monster just like his friend so the uh, the end of the film uh, takes place at a steel mill 
Uh, he the only way he's able to to kill his friend and disperse the immortal energy is he ends up he uh, in the fight he uh, kills him in a uh, kills him in a uh, steel foundry in like a blast furnace. Hmm. So that that would be a really cool way to like the, the fight at the steel mill with molten metal flying everywhere. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, uh, visually it'd be really really uh, interesting. Oh, and I forgot. Oh, I forgot the other thing. Uh, because the friend is pseudo immortal, McCloud is pseudo immortal too. Like he feels flashes of his immortality, but mixed with pain. And at first, he actually thinks that it's some mortal disease finally killing him. As far as he knows, he's mortal. Hmm. But but that notion gets dispersed pretty early on when, when you know he goes to a doctor. With that, I have one question for you: What you what you what you watching? Well. Let me see. Well, you know what? Uh, I've been doing a lot of illustrations recently, so I've had a lot of different uh, movies and things playing in the background. Uh, 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 while drawing and doing my illustrations today, I started watching the film Carry On Cruising, one of the, the British Carry On films, which is a series I've been trying to catch little bits of because I do like uh, I, I do like Kenneth Williams and a lot of the other comic actors who appeared in it. I had to stop watching that movie about a half hour in. It is god-awful. And I have some tremendous tolerance for movies. Um, uh, other than that, I've been reading more... I've been continuing to read P.G. Woodhouse, and I also started reading Rama 2 by Arthur C. Clarke and Gentry Lee, which, after a real slow start, is finally starting to pick up a lot of steam about uh, about 80 pages in. There was a, a Rama a CD-ROM game made in the '90s with full motion video with uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Oh uh, yeah, it was by uh, Sierra. Yes, that's correct. Um, as for me, I haven't had a whole lot of time to uh, watch movies lately. I've sort of been busy, uh, very busy all this month of April 2012. But I, I did get a chance to uh, sit down. I've been enjoying this cartoon on uh, Cartoon Network or Adult Swim, rather. Called Adventure Time. Oh, Adventure Time! That's awesome. It has, uh, you know, I saw the original Adventure Time pilot, which was made for Nickelodeon, jeez, uh, six or seven years ago, and it, it's finally it's been picked up for at least four years now as a series on Cartoon Network, and each episode is about ten minutes long. It's absurd. It's childlike. It sometimes can be a bit disturbing. It's so difficult to describe, but like the illustration looks. Very flat and two D, like 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 a children's book, uh, scrawlings, and, and well, it's, I, yeah, go on. It, it's a it's a post apocalyptic fantasy adventure series with a light heart, right? And the characters you have are Jake the dog and Finn the human, and uh, Jake the dog is voiced by Bender himself, John DiMaggio. Oh yeah, and now, I really liked an episode I saw recently where. It had all the characters of the show, but they were all opposites. All the men were women, all the women were men. And uh, in the op- in the end, it was revealed that this was just a fan fiction written by the Ice King that he was reading out loud. To, <laughs> That's awesome. To a captive Finn and Jake. But they really go for it, even with the minor characters, where, like, Mr. Cinnamon Roll Man is now a woman in this car- in this episode. And it... Uh, the... Oh, whatever, like, the the goth chick vampire is, like, a lonely guy now. Like, the things they go to in ten minutes is just pretty insane. Oh, that's nice. I like that. I, I love the theater of the absurd. Uh, what is a bit interesting as far as the home video releases in the United States of uh, Adventure Time 
is they came out with two DVDs. I have one of them that are just random episodes, and they just recently finally announced a release uh, for season one later this year, even though there's been four seasons on TV so far. Uh, however, when Cartoon Network airs them on cable, because each episode is ten minutes long, and you set your DVR to record 30 minutes worth, it kind of randomly pairs up two episodes together back-to-back. So you run into a lot of um, inadvertent repeats that way. Since since uh, each episode is not a complete 20-minute block. So I, I can tell by this that you recommend Adventure Time over Highlander 3? Yes, yeah, Adventure Time's great. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they've made Highlander references on Adventure Time episodes. They probably have. Yeah. Uh, all right, so um, next time on SequelCast, we'll be looking at Highlander Endgame, the fourth and the last theatrical film in the series. And the week after that, we'll be looking at various spinoffs like the TV show and the animated series and the anime. So a lot of stuff going on in the future. Um, so let's check out the website again at SequelCast.com. Uh, again, the theme song is performed by... Mark with a C, check out his stuff at markwithac.com and buy his albums at markwithac.bandcamp.com. Of course, you can also listen to SequelCast on Stitcher. You can check that out at stitcher.com slash SequelCast. So for the SequelCast, this is Matt. And Thrasher. Saying, don't put condoms in your mouth. It's a bad idea. Unless you are concerned about catching something from the person whom you're fellating. Right, just uh, just get extra big uh, Ziploc bags and place them over your partner. That's the <laughs> that only is... way to truly be safe. It's cut a little hole I, so they can breathe. I don't know what shape your cock is, but that is some very irresponsible information. <laughs> <laughs>